welcome to the Coach Steve Clark Show, where he will encourage, inspire, and equip coaches, players, and parents who will in turn motivate and help others to promote the great game of tennis, foster sportsmanship, and develop greater players and people. Thanks for joining us, and here's your host, Steve Clark. Hello everyone, this is Steve Clark and thanks so much for tuning into the show. I'm really excited about today. With me is ATP great Robin Soderling. And before I bring Robin on, I'd like to give you just some highlights and highlights because there's so much of Robin's tennis career, but I think I'd be right in saying that he has a lot to say about other areas of his life, some of which we'll get into as well. As a junior, he reached number two in the world turning professional in 2001 at 17 years old. Aside from his 11 ATP titles, 10 of which were singles, his big serve and forehand, which I loved him smacking uh, people around on the court with, he became the first multiple Swedish titleist since Magnus Norman to win the Swedish Open. A highlight that perhaps many of you are familiar with was his being the first player ever to beat Nadal at the French Open in 2009, and then he took down Fed the following year in the quarterfinals at Roland Garros. He had numerous Grand Slam impressive finishes, including two finals at the French, quarterfinal at both Wimbledon and the U.S. Open, and fourth round at the Aussie. Severe illness took him out of the game in 2011, and after courageous recovery, he later retired from the tour in 2015, and now heads up his RS premium tennis brand in balls, strings, and grips. He also coaches and enjoys spending time with his family. Without further ado, Robin, thanks uh, for giving your time. I uh, really appreciate you coming on the show. And how are you doing this afternoon in Sweden? Thank you, Steve. It's nice to be on your show. Uh, I'm doing I'm doing pretty good. As you said, I'm back home in Sweden, enjoying the still uh, cold weather here. Uh, you know, the spring hasn't arrived yet. So we're <laughs> all Swedes are waiting for it. So hopefully it will come soon. I was just coming home from uh, Miami a week ago where uh, where the weather was a little bit better, I have to say. <laughs> just a bit. <laughs> just a bit, well, yeah. Now, how, how'd your player do down there? You're coaching, and how did he do? <clears throat> yeah, so I'm coaching a, a Swedish player, Elias Imer. Uh, he is uh, he's turning 22 this year. He's ranked around 130 in the world right now. He uh, lost in the last round of volley to Yuki Bambri uh, in a good match, um, which was a little bit sad because he, he played, I, I think he played better in the first set. He had some big chances. And then he lost it 7-5, and then Bambri was better in the second. But overall, it was a pretty good tournament. Uh, you know, when we start, when I started to work with Elias about nine months ago, he was 280 in the world. Now he got down to 130. So he's definitely improving, which is uh, which is what I really want to see. And hopefully, you know, he can break into the top 100, and then we have to take it from there. It only gets tougher and tougher the higher rank you are. Well, these are some of the things I want to talk about, and and uh, boy, we're talking to the right guy because it's people are going to really learn a lot about uh, various levels of tennis. So that's great. Hey, Robin, uh, you know, given my intent to connect with players, parents, and coaches, I'd like to ask you just a few questions on the aspects. Of your journey and get your thoughts because I know people are going to uh, glean a lot. And the first area I'd like to start with is obviously juniors um, and parents and kind of how uh, you know we can learn from that. Uh, so many players have different journeys to the top. There is no, I think a lot of people would agree, there's no one way to make the path from beginner, you know, a little kid that picks up a little beginner racket wow. and starts smacking balls, uh, to the elite level, though there are some common features or characteristics. What do you think really are the common characteristics or the events or things that have to happen to be in place for players to get the best out of their tennis, even to have a shot at playing collegiately or at the pros? Yeah, well, I think uh, as it was for me, and then I would say most of all the, the players that, you know, uh, became uh, good players, uh, not specifically uh, top ADP players, but, you know, as you said, they, they, they've been going to college and they've been they've been reaching pretty far in their career, I'd say, you know, first of all, many of them, they have an, uh, an inner passion, uh, which I think uh, you have to have. You have to, uh, 
like the game and you have to be able to push yourself uh, a little bit further. I mean, you can, if someone is pushing you, it only works so far. I think you have to want it for yourself. And uh, I think that's what I had as a kid. You know, I did many different sports, um, but I always, tennis was the only individual sport I did. You know, I played soccer, ice hockey, handball, but I liked tennis more already from the start because it was an individual sport. And I think that suited my personality and my mentality mentality better than, than playing the team sports. You know, you know, I have prepared questions, but this is this is perfect because some of the things that you're hitting on, for example, just psychologically, you say you like team sports. I know, um, you know, some kids, you know, they'll say, well, I don't like team sports uh, because, you know, I could play great and the team doesn't and we lose. At tennis, it's just you. And if you play well, you win. Or you don't even have to play well. You could play poorly and win. But it's all about, yeah, you know, <laughs> you, you rise and fall. That's you rise and fall on your own stra- own racket and strings. And I think that it takes a special attitude to do that. Would you agree? Yeah, that's exactly how I felt. You know, I remember playing, I could play a soccer match and uh, it could be that, you know, I played really well, uh, scored twice and my team could still lose. And also the opposite, you know, sometimes I could felt like I didn't play well at all in, uh, on the on the soccer pitch, but my, my team still won. You know, tennis felt so much more fair. Uh, it was so much more up to me. I um, I could decide more whether I wanted to win or lose. Uh, and, you know, I could take all the credit if I won. And also, you know, there was no one to blame if I if I lost, uh, which sometimes, of course, it's, it's difficult to handle. But <laughs> I, hard, I, yeah. I definitely I definitely like that more than, than the team sport. You... I mean, everybody's different. You know, as you said, some players or some... Uh, yeah, some some players or some uh, some juniors, some kids, they like team sports better because they feel they can relax more and and and, and that, in that way play better. But I was totally the opposite. Yeah. Do you think most successful players are the opposite? Do you think most successful players? I mean, they may love team sports, but boy, they sure they sure like uh, rising and falling on their own. Do you think most are like that? Um, I think so. I think that's why you choose an individual yeah. sport from the from the beginning. I would say that an individual sport, without having to play, without having played any you know team sports on a on a higher level when I got older, I think that it mentally it's tougher doing a, an individual sport. I mean, both on court, but also off the court. You know, I have some some friends now. They've been professional soccer players, professional ice hockey players. And when I talk to them about their life, you know, of course they had a lot of pressure performing on the ice or whatever, but but still there was a team, you know, they were they could take some pressure off each other and also everything around it. As an individual tennis player you have to deal with everything. You know, there's there's good players being ranked, you know, well inside the top hundred that still have to, you know, deal with their uh, hotel reservations, their travel plans, their scheduling. In a team sport Someone else takes care of that for you, and all you have to do is just basically focus on 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 what you do on the ice or on the on the soccer field. Yeah, that's good stuff because you know some people deciding what they want to do. You know, as they're thinking, they, it, it, sometimes you do. You feel out there like you're by yourself, and you see some other kids having fun with their soccer teams and all that. But you understand there's the the pluses and minuses, and and it's just different. And so that that's that's uh, yeah. that's great insight. Hey, you mentioned the passion. Let me ask you a question. I know some people have said this, and and I wasn't planning on asking this, but you mentioned it. You know, do you think tennis players, you know, have to study, or do you think they want to study? You know, the history of the game and know the players and watch a lot of it. You know, like some some kids uh, don't want to watch a lot of tennis; they want to play it. Some, uh, you know, they don't know their history of tennis. Do you think that's that indicative of somebody with passion, or do you think it's just more about getting out there and just uh, being on court? Well, uh, for myself as a kid, I watched a lot of tennis, and I think that helped me a lot. You know, uh, you can actually learn from from just watching. You don't have to play yourself all the time. Then, of course, it's not necessary that you know all the names and all the players twenty, thirty, forty years back. But I think watching tennis and watching better players, especially watching them in match situations, but also on the practice court, see how they how they do, how they react in different situations. I mean, you can definitely learn a lot from that. 
That's that's awesome. I'm going to jump ahead actually because the question there is uh, a lot of times I suggest players watch uh, the end of sets and matches. If they can't watch an entire match nowadays with recordings, you can actually watch like the last four games, last five games, or yeah. you know when it gets tight in that set and the second set and grand slams, you got multiple chances to watch it and especially finishing people off. You think that's uh, you know good advice? That's a very good advice. You know, nowadays compared to 10, 20 years ago, it's, I mean, the whole the whole society is different. Everything has to happen faster. As a kid, you know, basically everything I did after school was just doing sports. You know, there, we didn't have those iPhones or we barely didn't have computer games. Um, so it was easier for us kids just to sit and watch a, a full tennis match. There was nothing else to do. You know, now nowadays there's so much competition from from other stuff. So definitely, it's it's more difficult for kids. You know, sit and watch a full tennis match. And and if they could just you know watch uh, parts of it, I think uh, it it could help them a lot. You don't necessarily have to watch a whole match because in the match, you know, there's there's certain key moments, and if you as a kid can you know learn to, to to find them and see how the players, the best players, react and, and and try to take after them, I mean it could really help you a lot. Yeah. Did you have early aspirations to be number one in the world? Like when you were a kid, uh, Is that, were you thinking of that, or were you yeah. just you just even being a pro player, or did you just kind of wanted to play no, tennis? No, well as a kid, as a kid, my dream was. You know, my goal was to be number number one in the world for sure, like many other kids. But I, I realized that the older I got, the more I realized it wasn't that that easy. <laughs> so you know, I I, uh, I kind of put my goals back a little bit. And my first goal was actually after juniors to to break into the top hundred. And I remember that feeling. I think I lost in the second round of of US Open when I was 18 or, or 19. And I knew that okay, next week I'm gonna be ranked 99 in the world. And that was that was an amazing feeling because, you know, not many players, uh, there's so many tennis players in the world starting to play tennis and they all have a dream, but not many can make it. Tennis is a really difficult sport. You know, there there's only a couple of hundred players maximum that could actually live of it and have it as a, as a work. Um, so that's maybe one of my proudest moments uh, when I broke into the top 100. That's awesome. How were your parents involved uh, as you kind of grew up from beginner to top junior? And uh, what might you suggest to parents uh, in their, you know, coaching or just encouraging their kids? Yeah, well, I think in an individual sport like tennis, you know, you have to have you have to have some support, uh, and that could come from a coach or but. But most of the time, it comes. It has to come from from your parents. And my parents were very supportive, especially my dad. You know, I I don't know how many times he's been driving me around for practices, for for matches in in different different villages, different cities. Um, so he really supported me a lot. But also, I think my dad um, he was a good table tennis player uh, growing up, but he was he was forced to retire or his his mom so my grandmother forced him to retire uh already when he was 19 uh because she wanted him to go study uh so i kind of always felt that he was a little bit living his own missed you know table tennis career through means that so sometimes i i felt that he was he was pushing me a little bit because i was that kid that really didn't need that extra push you know i i always wanted to practice more he could he could leave me at the tennis courts in the morning and then pick me up late in the night. And I was just there the whole day watching others play, playing myself. Um, so I didn't really need that push from the beginning. So sometimes I feel like he was, you know, he got a little bit too involved and a little bit too excited sometimes, especially when I, when I, you know, when I became 11 or 12, starting to play the Nationals, won mm. the Nationals, and he realized I was actually pretty good. Uh, <laughs> then he got... <laughs> Then he got even more involved. Uh, I mean, which is good in one way, but in one way, maybe sometimes I felt it was a little bit too much. It created a little bit uh, too much pressure on on me. So, mm-hmm. But the, you know, it's, it's it's a fine line. You have to support your kids, uh, but not take it too far, which is extremely difficult. Well, and there's some parents that are coach parents, and you know that's or and that's even a different. Uh, 
level. Yeah. I, and you've probably seen a lot time. of those. Yeah. I'm a coach yeah, parent, I mean, so, yeah. Yeah. And, and then you probably know it's not, it's not the most uh, easy, easiest thing, you know, every day uh, to do that. And I think that works for, that could work for, for many kids, but not for all. I personally, especially when I got a little bit older, uh, you know, it was really tough for me to listen to, to what my dad said, you know. Yeah. I don't know. I heard his voice so many times. It was easier for me to listen to a coach, which I didn't have to listen to every day, 24-7, you know. Right. Uh, but some kids are different. Some, you know, sometimes they work. Uh, but most of the times, it's, I think it's really difficult. So I, I, it's, it's important that you have support from your parents. But if they can, I think it's also important that they sometimes take a step back because most of the times the, the kid will listen more to a coach than to his, to his parents. Yeah. You know, um, how how for juniors, or how big was fitness for you when you were developing you know, some kids are just really big. Some are, you know, just mature a little sooner. But how how important was fitness for you? And what you do in the off season or when you weren't playing tournaments as a junior per se? Your fitness and maybe I'll, I'll probably ask that later on in the pro section. I want to ask you about things. But as a junior, what what was your fitness like? Your training? Well, I one thing I really regret is that I didn't start focus on the fitness earlier in my career. You know, I started being serious with that when I was maybe 18, 19, even 20, uh, which is a shame. I, sh- I I could have started way earlier, uh, which I didn't do. I don't know. I was just so focused on playing tennis. And, and basically all I did was just playing tennis. Uh, and that could, if I, if I would have started fitness a little bit earlier, that could really help me prevent, I think some of the injuries I got early, early, pretty early in my career. But it's also it's also very important that you that you find a good uh, training program or a, that you find a good uh, fitness coach that can really help you because there's so many things you could do and not all of them are, are good uh, for tennis. You know, it could actually be be bad for your tennis. So I think that's as important as as a tennis coach. Yeah. Through uh, though you didn't go the collegiate route, I know you personally know fellow uh, you know Swedes that did. I think Simon Asplund, um, I remember him well when he played at Pepperdine, and um, you know there's some other other guys. Uh, how do you how do you see uh, U- U.S. collegiate tennis as a pathway to the pros? I mean, you've seen a lot of guys out there and guys that have done that. What what do you think about that? Yes, and I see more and more guys uh, doing that. I think the tennis has changed a lot within the last you know 10 20 years i would say it takes longer for for a player to break through now but also at the same time you see players performing really well you know well over over 30 which you maybe didn't see 20 years ago so uh, i would say college is a really really good alternative right now because it it gives you the opportunity to to study and play almost as a professional for 3 4 years uh, and you know you don't see you don't see players winning Grand Slams when you're 18 anymore, and you probably won't ever see it again. Um, so I think that that's a really good thing, especially for players that are good but they're not yet top players, and they feel insecure if they want to start going pro straight after high school, which is which is not easy. So I think those years, if you go to college, you get. You, know, you can practice well. You can even play tournaments. You play a lot of team matches. I think that's a good, good thing to do, and that's uh, an advice I give to to young young players, especially Swedish players, because we have a lot of Swedish players coming from uh, going to uh, going to colleges, and, and you know, after that, when they're finished, they start playing future tournaments and try. I think that you know, those three four years in college is a really good base. Yeah, and that. That brings up a question I have, even for you know, a lot of U.S. players. I, I feel sometimes they, you know, there is this perception. It's like, wow, you know, uh, I could be like uh, Shapovalov or something where I can be young and get out there on the tour. But guys just don't mature at the same rate. And when you when you go to college, you know, it all it, it helps with that. But secondly is 
I think a lot of guys and gals maybe get discouraged because they're not being supported by the national, you know, I, and this is probably the case in a lot of countries, you know, where it's like maybe they're not yeah. on the national scene, you know, not being supported and even financially supported by the national uh, organization. But, you know, I, I personally think, hey, man, it's like you said, if you have the passion, you work hard. There are different pathways. And what do you think about that? Is of you know how do you encourage a kid that really wants to play pro or play at a high level, but maybe he doesn't have the backing that somebody else does right now? No, of course, you know it's like it's probably the same in almost every country. If you're not the top, you know, number one or two player in that country, you're not going to get much of support from from the national federation. So, and if you don't if you don't have the the money to go traveling because starting a tennis career it's it's expensive you know you have to pay for all your trips yourself you're not making any money at all almost on, on future tournaments uh and also you you're talking about Shapovalov and, and TFO and these guys of course you can be as good as them when you're already 17 18 but but if you're not you you still have a pretty good chance if you're a good player and if you if you work hard you have a good chance to to become a good player but for for some for some uh, some kids, uh, some players, it takes longer, you know, both physically and mentally. And for every year, it gets, I would say, it gets more more and more difficult to break through early. The sport has become so much more physical. Uh, maybe maybe you're a really talented kid when you're 17, 18, and then playing wise, you're you're almost there, but you're far off physically. So that's why those years you go to college, you can work on your both on your tennis. Uh, you can work on your fitness, uh, become more mature, and also at the same time have a good. Uh, you can have an uh, education to fall back on if you, if you don't make it, which is which could take a lot of pressure off yourself, you know. Because I see many many young kids they try to fight on uh, on futures and they're scared what's going to happen if they don't make it. They have really nothing to fall back on because they basically never went to school. Yeah. But I think it's also important that you go. There's so many. There's so many schools. There's so many colleges, and, and and so many good ones. But it's also really important that you you come to a good one, uh, and that you have teammates around you that are really ser- serious. Because because uh, the environment you're going to take after the environment you live in. You know, if uh, if you're not serious enough, if you don't, if you're not focused enough, or or your teammates are not, you're it's going to be so much more difficult to be to be serious enough yourself. So yeah. choosing the right school, I think it's it's really important as well. Yeah. Moving up into the pros, um, I, you know, you can look back when Roy Emerson played, and and uh, um, you know, even. It just as far and not even that far back, Pete Sampras, et cetera. You look at Michael Chang. You know, there's the we we don't we don't a lot of people don't know what the pros were like back then. I mean, if you go back further, I mean, they didn't make a lot of money. It was more, uh, you know, uh, it was a lot of your own work and it, it was just a lot different. But from when you played in the pros and to when now you're coaching, what would be some of the differences in the day to day life? You know, some kids may be as, aspiring to get out there. Um, what to the day and day life in and outs, you know, getting around is how is it different than when you played and now even as a coach when you're coaching a young man on tour? I would say, uh, well, I I retired just you know a few years ago, so maybe not much have changed mm-hmm. uh, from just a few years back. But as you said, if you're looking uh, a little bit further back to when you know, 10, 15 years ago to when, you know, Sampras, Agassi and these guys plays, uh, played. I think everybody's just more serious. They're, they don't want to leave anything behind. They're, they're serious with, with their nutrition, with their uh, training regime, with their fitness, how much they sleep. Uh, many players, uh, they bring not only one tennis coach. They, some of them have two tennis coaches. They have a... Um, a trainer they have a fitness coach so i kind of see that players they don't want to leave anything uh behind they just want to do everything as good as possible to have the chance to to reach higher you know they they make bigger investments earlier in their career now than, mm. than a few years back i would yeah. say um yeah yeah you had 10 a, a you had 10 titles and singles and 
and numerous deep runs into slams. When you got to those moments, did you have what kind of thoughts did you have? Did you have did you have thing, thoughts like I'm about to win this? Just get the ball in the stinking court, or did you just treat it like yeah. any other any other point? I mean, share, I mean, um, get real with these guys, and, yeah. and they're they're probably they idolize you and people like you. And they oh they don't doubt they don't have problems like that. No, well, for me, I always uh, during my career, I always tried to treat every occasion the same whether it was just the first round in a smaller 250 tournament or in a grand slam final i just try to tell myself this is just another tennis match i played so many before i won so many i lost many matches uh which is not easy especially you know i remember the first time i um i got to a grand slam final in paris in, in 09 uh, I was extremely nervous. You know, that was big. You know, uh, I didn't perform well at all because I was just, you know, I played Roger Federer and he, he won as many Grand Slam titles as I won matches, you know. And then to play him in the final, that was uh, yeah. that was really, really big for me. And I was over, overwhelmed by the moment. But I think um, it also helped me a lot later in my career again you know i realized okay i played a good match i lost in three straight sets but still you know i uh i i i kept up with him and i made it you know i i survived almost that's how i felt <laughs> right. uh, and it, it, it gave me a lot of confidence and then the more times you do it the easier it gets um but it's you have to be there you know you can that's not something you can really practice on uh, you just have to be in those situations and get mm-hmm. used to those situations. You know, it was the same when I played my first ADP tour match in my career when I was 16 or 17. I was extremely nervous, but after after a year or after a few years, you know, I was nervous as nearly as nervous uh, for my first round matches. So, uh, so it's just a matter of doing it and, and, and prove to yourself that you can do it. You know, those of you listening, there's a few things in there a bunch of golden nuggets one is he won a lost he won a lot he lost a lot he still gained confidence from losses those are important things because even though he played well he lost uh sometimes you can you can win and play horrible and actually lose a little confidence in your game because you didn't play so well even though you won i mean so i think there's some Mm -hmm. good good things uh for you guys listening out there uh from that um yeah i just have to say that was one thing i did you know, early in my career, I was so focused on playing well all the time. I cared so much how I felt on court because I was a little bit insecure. I, I felt that, okay, if I'm not playing my best tennis, I can't beat those guys, those top 50 guys. But throughout the years, I learned that, you know, tennis is it's not about, you know, who plays, who, who playing well all the time. It's, it's about winning the match. And, and so many times, I won matches without playing my best tennis, and that also gave me a lot of confidence. So I kind of try to switch my my thinking a little bit. You know, instead of being so focused on trying to to play well all the time, I was just trying to be focused on on winning the match. You know, you don't get any points for for style in tennis. <laughs> whatever, the only thing that counts is just you know whoever wins the match. Uh, after a while, you know, no one no one will care how you play. Just if you won or, or if you lost, and that really helped me a lot. I think that's maybe one of the the key things that took me from a player being ranked for many years, you know, within the top twenty, top top thirty, uh, from all of a sudden being ranked being ranked in the top five. I wouldn't say I were a much better player when I played when I played my my best tennis, but I won so many matches just because I accepted that. You know, every day is different. You can't play your best tennis every time you go on court. No one can, not even Federer or Nadal. No one can play their best tennis. And but they still win a lot of ma- a lot of matches against good players, and that what makes the difference. Not what you do one or two matches or one or two weeks here and there. It's whatever you do throughout the whole year that that really matters. Yeah, yeah, excellent. Um. I want to talk a little bit about game plans because uh, you know Borg. You know, I, I I read once that he 
he said, you know, I don't think a lot out there. I get out there and, you know, and kind of more react, et cetera. But, you know, we're always talking about, look, everybody has a certain game style. You're either a serving volleyer, a aggressive baseline, or an all-court player, et cetera. You want to be true to your game style. But, you know, if you're not playing well, you got to tweak it. You go to plan A, plan B, just within your game yeah. style. But, you know, we have, we have strategy against a certain opponent. We have, you know, our tactics, et cetera. When you played, like, for example uh, – you know, how much did you think and go into it, like when you played Nadal, Federer, or anybody, you know, how much of that was, hey, okay, I'm going to go after this strategy, I'm going to play my game, but i got to make sure I'm executing this against them. I mean, how much, because I know they're scouting, et cetera, how much yeah. can you explain that you did? Well, I always, before a match, I always try to go into the match, play my game, do whatever I did best, uh, use my strength as much as possible. But I also, before every match, I always, me together with my coach, we always set up a, a plan if that didn't work. So as you said, we always had a plan B and even a plan C. And But I think it's important that you really go into a match and use your strength, not tweak your game too much, uh, depending on how, you, how your opponent is playing. You know, you just have to use what you do best. But then if that doesn't work, if you realize after a set or even a half set that this is probably not gonna work today, then it's really important <laughs> that you have a that you have a plan B which you can which you can go to. And I think that's the case most of the professional players are doing. You know, they know what they do best, they know uh, they feel secure with their game and that's how they're gonna start the match. Robin, I, I, I call it bread and butter. What was your bread and butter? What was your game style? What it, If you had every day you wanted to pound a ball a certain way, what what was your uh, combo? What would you like doing? Well, I think I always played better when I when I was moving my feet a lot, trying to um, go around, hit my forearm as much as uh, possible. And also, when I played my best, I could always use my back and down the line a lot. That's why... Uh, I always like to play against, you know, clay court players, Spanish players uh, on clay because they they also always try to look for the foreign. They go around, they play a lot of foreign uh, inside out, and then I could they leave a gap on their foreign side, and then I could use my back and down the line, which was maybe my favorite shot. Um, and of course, always when I served well, a serve was really important mm-hmm. for me. Uh, when I had a lot of first serves in, I felt so much more secure on court, and in that way, I could really uh, relax a little bit and and play more freely. That's great. Uh, you're listening to the Coach Steve Clark PhD show with former world class player and top AT, uh, ATP phenom Robin Soderling. Uh, be sure to share the podcast and uh, my website with your friends uh, at coachsteveclarkphd.com. There you'll find blogs, podcasts, resources, and video discussion. And in a few minutes, though, I also want to give you uh, Robin. Uh, Robin, actually, right right now, I want you to give them your website. Uh, and we're going to talk about that in a bit, about your RS premium brand balls and strings and all that. What's your what's your website that people can maybe go to? So it's uh, rs-tennis.com. Uh, uh, lo- where we have information. Yeah. yeah, that's where we have all the information about our products. We also have a web shop uh, if people uh, want to want to buy anything, and uh, so that's that's where they need to go to if okay. they want to check out our brand. Yeah, well, uh, and we'll talk about that in a bit. And you know, towards the end of uh, Robin's career, he got really sick. And uh, Robin, if if you don't mind, I'd like to maybe have you share a little bit what happened and how you uh, you know battled through that. Yeah, uh, sure. That was an extremely tough time for me, uh, both physically but also also mentally. You know, I was 27 years old. I was ranked four or five in the world. I was maybe playing my best tennis uh, when it happened. And I got the mononucleosis, uh, which I think now I got from, you know, I think from all the playing and all the stress and traveling for so many years, not taking any real rest, my immune system was really run down. I was really overtrained. And then when I had the mono, I got extremely sick for a long time. Uh, you know, I was basically in bed for for six months. I was I, I probably didn't leave my house once for almost almost half a year. 
Um, and then, then I slowly started to get get better. But every t- time I try to come back, make a comeback, I try to play a little bit, practice a little bit more, a little bit harder. Symptoms came back a little bit. I was extremely tired again, and it went on like that for for many years before I finally felt, you know, I was 100% healthy again. So it was an extremely tough time, especially after a while, you know, when I felt better, but I still just couldn't do anything physically. I was laying in my bed watching watching tennis on TV. I saw the players performing really well, and that's players I, I, I had beaten a lot of times. Even, you know, I saw... I remember I saw a U.S. Open finals between Nishikori and, and Silic, uh, with Silic winning a, a Grand Slam title, which was my dream. And, and I just, all I could do was basically staying at home watching it from, from far away. And that was extremely tough mentally. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, I can't. I mean, I can only imagine because I've never been there. So, uh, yeah. that I, and, you know, I want to relate this to just your junior you know, uh, even college players or even high school kids, it's like sometimes they get sick, they get an injury, and they get really bummed. They're playing well, and then all of a sudden they mm-hmm. get an injury, and they're out for a week, you know, and it sends them into a spiral. And I want you guys to listen. He was he was in bed six months, and, uh, you know, he kept fighting through it and came, you know, uh, was still able to play at a pretty high level. But, you know, like you said, it was, it was tough. It's tough at that level. It's even more important to be 100%. And... But you know you got to just keep fighting. So that's uh, w- what lessons could you uh, give us and uh, give some listeners that uh, you know from that experience. I think well, you have to be ready because no one goes through a whole career without having any any injuries at all or any setbacks. It's just a part of the game. Uh, and sometimes uh, you know, especially early in my career, I had a lot of injuries. I had two knee surgeries. I had a pretty serious uh, wrist injury. But I think I learned a lot from those moments and I was able to, to do a lot of fitness. I was able to take my mind off from tennis a little bit, uh, from the traveling. So every time I came back stronger, uh, and that was my, I told my, every time I told myself, okay, I'm going to come back stronger. I'm going to be even better. This is an opportunity for me. Okay. I can't play as much tennis now for a while, but there's so many other things I could do, which I normally don't have time to do when I'm traveling, playing tournaments every other week, um, which helped me a lot. Because you can, you can basically choose, you know, you can just lay down and then be sad and don't do anything, or you can see it as an opportunity. I, you always have to do your best in every situation. And that's, that's the way I was thinking a lot when I, when I played. You know, going, on, going into a match, I realized, okay, I can't really decide what my... Uh, opponent's going to do. I can only focus on myself and win or lose. If I can go off the court uh, and and feel that, you know, I gave it a hundred percent. I did my absolutely best. I always try to tell myself that that was good enough because there's, there's not much more you can do. Yeah. That's uh I have a saying that uh, I've been using for years. It's if you always give your best, you sometimes play your best and you one time be the best. I mean, the and you can't do the latter two unless you do the first thing. If you give your best all the time, the other things aren't going to happen. And you have to feel good no, about what you're doing. Exactly. And there's, every time you go to bed, you know, I wanted to feel satisfied with, with my day. So that, okay, I didn't, maybe I didn't play so well today, but at least I tried my best 100%. And again, you know, there's nothing more you can do than, than do your best all the time. And sometimes... It's it's enough. Sometimes you win. Sometimes it's not enough. But there's so many good other good players out there. You can you just can't win uh, every time. You can only only do your best every time. That's that's what you really can can do. Yeah. You know, Robin, you uh, you mentioned on your uh, Facebook page. Uh, you said you know you were at a tournament and you you couldn't wait to get home to your family. Um, can you share a little a little bit about what it's like to be on the road and and maybe you know how how much that uh, drives you to get back home and and uh, and the reason why I'm asking is a lot of times I think uh, people watching these great players on the tour or even you know and they say oh you know they have a family now so they don't ha- their goals aren't as high or they're not as driven and you know I I, I think 
you know, just even not even on the tour level, people find different ways. You're still driven, but they have different ways to organize their time and do things, and their focus just gets probably even a little more intense on when they have the time. But uh, yeah, curious if you could maybe I, just you know share a bit that about that part of your life. Well, um, if I had kids when I was playing, I would probably feel that, like many other player with families, does they they travel with their family because as a professional player, you travel for thirty thirty plus weeks every year, and that and with small kids, that's really difficult to be away from them. That mm-hmm. that would have been hard, uh, but I think when you have kids you get a different perspective on, on life you know all of a sudden whatever you do on tennis court is is important but maybe not as important as before and for some players that could really really help a lot you know they get perspective and they make them play even better and I think that's that's the case in most other times um, and for a few players, it might be, as you said, it might be different. You know, they will probably, they could maybe lose their drive a little bit. But for the most part of the players, I think it really helps. If you can organize it with the scheduling, with, with being able to bring your, your family. Um, that was the case for me. You know, I traveled up until I was 24, 25. I traveled alone myself, uh, only with the coach. And of course, sometimes I missed home a lot. Uh, especially after I'd been out on the road for three, four weeks, start to miss my uh, my family, my friends. Uh, but uh, I, I started to travel with my girlfriend when I was 24 or 25, and that really helped me a lot, you know, because all of a sudden I wasn't missing home as much anymore because I kind of felt that, okay, home was, was where I were, you know, uh, mm-hmm. at that point. And that, that really helped me a lot. Yeah. So home is the people you're with. <laughs> yeah, I would say so. So yeah. again, you know, it's really it's really important you surround yourself with with good people uh, that you feel comfortable with uh, because it's 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 difficult to perform over a long time if you don't feel really happy. It could work for a few weeks or a few months or even a year, but in the long run, it, it it's really difficult. Yeah. As a coach, um, I just want to ask you a couple questions just to make sure we uh, uh, are timely here. Is, uh, you know, how hard you worked as a player? Um, how do you, do you push your players harder, the same, or less than you were pushed or pushed yourself? Uh, well, pretty much the same, I would say. I always, what I expect from a player I coach is that every time, uh, he he or she is on the court. Uh, I want them to give 100%. Uh, there's no excuses, of course, if they're feeling sick or injured. But if they're not, it's really important that you that you always try to be there 100% from when the practice starts until it ends. Um, but but sometimes yeah, sometimes yeah. players think their 100% is 100% and it's relative to your work ethic it might only be about 70%. So how yeah, exactly. as a co- how, as a coach <laughs> Yeah. That's that's why it's important for as we talked about earlier that's why it's important for for kids and 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 younger players to to look at the top guys. Not only not only watch them in matches but also see them closely when they practice. See how serious they are. Uh, and see what it really takes uh, from you to to become a professional player or to become a good player. It takes a lot of hard work, but also I think I always say that if you if you play hard, if you practice hard, you also have to be able to rest hard because it's really when you when you're resting um, that the body recovers, the body and mind recovers, and then the next time you're hopefully a little bit stronger, a little bit better than your last practice. That's how you become better. I think many many coaches, uh, especially, they 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 think and they feel like more is always better. More is not always better. It's about the quality you put in uh, during your practice sessions that that really matters. Yeah, one hundred percent on that one. That's great. Well, yeah. well, Robin, let's, you know, so now, you know, we're kind of segueing in. You had your playing career, uh, 
and uh, you had the illness, and and uh, you know, and then now you're coaching. What about your business? Now you have the RS Premium brand, and um, why don't you? I'd, I'd love for you to share a little bit about um, you know your different products and maybe what they mean. Like for example, the Leon string. Like why is it called the Leon string? And and what what uh, what do your different products provide for different levels of players or types of players? Uh, maybe let's start with the balls because I think that's the first thing you came out with, um, and it's used at some yeah. of the ATP tournaments, etc. So why don't you uh, give a little. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, plug on that yeah um let's see where should i start um well uh when i played uh, myself i was always very picky with materials uh you know i, I knew exactly what racket i like what grip i like strings etc and uh and i remember i had a question from a journalist uh once uh many years back and he asked me which is the best ball you ever played with them i could not really come up with an answer on that at that time because there there was many good balls balls on the tour uh but I, I i really didn't have one favorite one so when i when i got sick and couldn't play you know after a while when i started to feel a little bit better i got tired of watching all the netflix series at home <laughs> um, I, I started to think about that and you know i uh, a thought came up in my head that oh, what if I could really try to develop a ball myself that I thought was the best ball. Uh, and, you know, I, I was thinking about it for a while. I talked to uh, some of my friends about it, my manager. Uh, and uh, after after many long discussions, you know, I decided, okay, I, I should really try to do it. So I sourced for uh, for the best factories all over the world I could find. Um, I I think I found the best factory, the one we're using now in Thailand. I went there a lot of times, uh, and then it took. I'm glad now I didn't I didn't know back then how much work it would take because it took took me almost a year to have the finished product. And then you know when I had it, that was the the ball that we called the the black edition, which is the first first ball that that I developed. You know I had the finished product. I, I gave it out to to friends, players, uh, some pro shops, and then the response was great. You know they all liked it, but I um, I didn't really know what to do with it. So I sat down with my with my manager, and that's when we decided that okay, should we try and commercialize this and and really make a company of this and start to sell the ball. Because otherwise, everything I did for the past you know, year, year and a half was just uh, was just waste. You know, I really wanted to see if, if many other players around the world liked the ball as much as I did. So that's how it started. Uh, we came up with the RS Black Edition in 2014. Uh, and we, we um, that's at that time, we only had one product. That's that's how we started. And then, and then, how's the tour edition different? So the tour edition is, uh, I would say, that's the second uh, second ball I came up with. It's it's a little bit faster uh, than than the black edition. Um, it's it's a little bit better for. I would say that. Recreational players from like 6.0 and below, uh, they they really love our Black Edition because it plays a little bit slower. Uh, it's a little bit easier to control. The Tour Edition, uh, it's not a fast ball. It's it's a regular speed ball. Uh, it has the same ex- exclusive components, but I would say uh, it suits better players a little bit more which is so the the tour edition is also the ball that that's been played in in, in, in a few ATP tournaments uh, right now it's it's been played for 3 years at the Stockholm Open ATP tournament here in Sweden and uh, for those of you who haven't seen him uh, and you go onto the website again uh, what's your website again there Robin it's rs rs-tennis.com yeah and the balls come in a four uh, the, they're four to a can it's really cool uh graphics the rs robin i have to say your rs uh logo is pretty cool i got I, I, no thank you yeah. yeah we try to implement you know some some swedish design in it <laughs> uh, we try to be very clean and uh, i think well that's not maybe uh, so much 
credit to me. You know, we work with a good uh, good agency that that came up with the design, and we we're really happy about it. Yeah. Now the strings. So you have uh, three strings out there. You have the New York, the Lyon, and then you uh, you have the Paris. So what are some? Uh, I think the first one was Lyon, if I'm correct. And then uh, what what are the differences between those, and maybe what players might like uh, those? Uh, yeah. So after a while, we realized, okay, if 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 we're gonna do a serious company of this, we need more products than just tennis balls. So I decided to uh, to develop the string. So the first string, as you said, is called the RS Leon, uh, and I named it Leon because that's where I won my first ADP title back in 2004. Uh, and it I played with uh, with Luxelon for basically my whole career, at least you know for the last 10 years of my career, and I love that string, the Luxelon All the Power. But I felt that it was a few things I could I could improve and change a little bit. One thing was the t- tension maintenance. I think, uh, as I said, uh, Luxelon L Power is a great string, but I, I, I thought it dropped tension a little bit too quickly. And and also, sometimes I had problems with my arm and elbow because it's a really a really stiff string. So the the Leon is um, it's a, it's similar to the Luxelon L Power, but it's a little bit softer, gives you a little bit more control and a little little bit, uh, bit less speed, but it's 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 a softer touch. So many of the players uh, that tries it, they say that the ball stays a little bit longer in the strings, and that's where you can control it a little bit better. Yeah, it's a softer string. I play with it. It's it's a very nice string. So yeah, and then you have Thank you. and then you have the uh, R. Uh, yeah, the Paris, which is more of a kind of an octagon uh, spin-oriented string. Um, yeah. Uh, now, does it have a little snapback? Because I know in techno- uh, technologically they've, they've found that the string has to actually have pretty good snapback in order to have that, uh, you know, that spin. So. Um, yes. That's actually one thing, one of the things I focus most on. Uh, as you said, the Aris, the Aris Paris has an... It, it's focused on spin and speed. You know, it has an eight-edge profile, octagon profile, uh, which gives you a little bit more spin. And also the snapback is, is really good, so it gives you a little bit more speed. But at the same time, maybe a little bit less control than the, than the RS Leon, which is a control-based uh, based string. So we try to really have different strings for, for different players because everybody's different yeah. uh, every player likes different things they have different play styles um so those are my two first strings and now also i just launched the rs new york which is a multi-filament string uh which is which is different from the other two which are which are monofilament so this one the rs new york um it's, my goal with that thing was to develop a string uh with the feel and play playabilities as close as possible to real natural gut string, uh, but it's still a synthetic gut, um, and I wanted to do that because buying real natural gut. I know many players do it, but it's extremely ex- expensive. Um, so this string, I put a lot of work in. We produce it in in a, in a good factory in Japan, and um, it really feels when you try it. It really feels like the real thing, the real natural gut. It's really close. Well, good. Again, um, I, th- I think uh, if people want to take a look at that, you go to rs-tennis.com, correct? Exactly. Yeah. You know, I, I uh, we're coming to the close a little bit. Now, I wanted to ask you just a couple uh, other questions that I know a lot of college coaches and even players uh, think about. Uh, I personally... Um, uh, you know, one of these days I'll probably have a podcast on uh, getting a bunch of guys on a on a group call here and talk about these things. But I want to see what your opinion is on a couple of these, Robin. Uh, what do you think about uh, no ad on tour, like not playing no ad scoring on tour? Do you think that'll ever happen? I know they do uh, in doubles sometimes, but uh, yeah. What do you well, think? I think I think it's gonna happen. Uh, maybe not in the near future, but I think you know. Tennis is a great sport, but we talked about it a little bit earlier. 
everyone's a little bit more impatient nowadays. Every <laughs> everyone wants more action. You know, I I personally I love those Grand Slam or Davis Cup fight setters when you're four all five all in the fifth set. It's just a battle. It's really long matches. It's just a battle, exactly. But not many many matches. Also, you know, they they end up three straight sets, six right. two, six three, six three. Uh, so I think you know. I think something's going to happen. I think the match is going to be a little bit shorter, a little bit a little bit more tense, uh, and then I think they're going to implement something. Maybe not the no ad. I think they're going to do it, but also you know play maybe every match best of five sets with shorter sets, shorter sets as they tried in you know the next gen, um, uh, the next gen um, tournament in Milan this year, the Masters there. Uh, I know the ATP, they're really trying to do something to, to make the sport even more popular. Tennis is a really popular sport, but sometimes I feel like if you look at a tournament first round, the ATP tournament first round Monday or Tuesday, you see many, many people in the stand, you know, they see their two all second set, they're, they're all on their iPhones. You know, it has to be, it has to be a little bit more action. And right. I think in one way it's, it's sad, but that's just how, how the society has, has, has changed. Yeah. Uh, but and to keep all those fans, uh, to keep them to tennis, you know, I think something, uh, something needs to be changed. What do you think about uh, playing Let's? Like, I, I personally, I think we should just play Let's. You know, in college, D1, we play Let's. The ball hits the tape on the serve, you play it, and it's almost never an issue, you know, where it drops over. No. I think we should just get rid of the whole thing and just even on the tour, just play Let's. What do you think? Yes. No, I, I think so, too. Of course, it's, it's difficult for ATP and ITF because in the beginning, all the players, they will be, they will be negative to it for a while. But it won't take long before everybody, everyone gets used to it. And I think uh, that's just, you know, with the left serve, it's just something that has been there for uh, yeah, since tennis started. And I think that's one of the things they could they could really take away. Uh, all things that could really speed up the game, I think it's going to be good for the tennis in the long run. Or it takes away the subjectivity. You know, I had a player one time. He was, you know, he's 25 in the country in the in the in the U.S. collegiate ranks, and you know, he ended up playing on the tour for a while. But he had a match point and hit an ace down the tee. Guy called the let, and it's like, well, you know, that's your yeah. opinion, and it's like, whoops, you know, it was match point. So <laughs> um, he ended up exactly. he ended up losing the and match. I think, you know. you know, yeah, and I think we're uh, we're going to see that. There's not going to be. There's going to be a share empire, and I don't think there's going to be any line empires anymore. I think that's all going to be handled by machines um, to take away that, you know, that insecurity. And uh, same with the left serve. I mean, there, there is machines now, but they're not hundred percent accurate. Sometimes you see players hitting ace on, on on really important points, and all of a sudden, you know, the the umpire says it's a left serve. Um, so small things there's a lot of small things you could do that could actually uh, up the, the interest for for the sport but the main thing is just to keep the matches a little bit shorter, a little bit more intense uh, so you don't have those long you know, from starting from 0 0-0, 1-0, 2-0, 3-0 it's just a matter of how do you say, it's just it's just a road takes and it takes like 30 40 minutes before before it finally gets a little bit more a little bit exciting right well as we come to the end of our time here robin what what would be something that you would just want to encourage up and coming players and even your club player out there who's playing a lot what maybe would you want to encourage them on well from a young age i think it's 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 really important that you do a lot of different sports. You don't have to specialize in, in one sport already when you're eight, nine, ten years old. For me, I did different sports up until I was 12, 13, and that was really good for me. You know, tennis was always my number one sport, but it really helped me, you know, physically to play ice hockey, to play soccer, and all those different sports. I think, you know, too many players, they go and try, they go with one sport way too early. Uh, which I think is 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 a shame. 
And and I think it's also, you know, to be able to be, you have to be extremely focused, but to, to be able to be that, you, I think it's really important that you have other interests in life as well. Uh, especially when you get a little bit older, you know, when I was playing tennis, basically my whole life was tennis. All I was thinking about was just tennis, which is maybe good in the short, short run, but in the long run, it takes a lot of energy. I mean, I wish now looking back, if I could do something differently in my career, I would just, you know, maybe, uh, created another interest. Maybe I should have just studied, studied a little bit. Uh, online, uh, do something that could take my mind off from tennis a mm-hmm. little bit. Yeah. Uh, uh, between matches, between practices, uh, because it it takes a lot of energy to live in this tennis bubble all the time. <laughs> well, that's good advice. Yeah. Well, Robin, it's been amazing having you on the show, and I really appreciate you coming along. I know you got a busy schedule, and you got to head off to a tournament coming up, and. Uh, just really appreciate it's actually the Davis Cup here in Sweden now being played. Yeah, they're starting in the, in an hour. First match Sweden against Port- Portugal in Stockholm. Really important match coming up. All right. And Elias is playing second match. He's playing with his younger brother. Plays the other single match. Michael Emer. So exciting things coming up. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you coming on. So thanks a lot. Thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. And as we close, uh, you've been listening to the Coach Steve Clark PhD Show with ATP great Robin Soderling. Be sure to like, share the podcast and my website with your friends at CoachSteveClarkPhD.com. But also, uh, don't forget to go to rs-tennis.com and take a look at their premium balls, strings, and grips. And let me leave you with another of my mottos. Uh, Rare greatness comes at a steep price. Mediocrity is abundant and cheap. You can check out my commentary on that motto by checking onto my website blog. Just again, thanks a lot, Robin, for coming on. Thank you. I would also like to add that if all customers that go to our webpage now, uh, right now and go to our, our web shop, if they use the code uh, Steve, they will get 20% off for a limited time. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, this will be <laughs> up and running, and uh, I appreciate that. That's great. Robin, thanks uh, Thanks again. Say, say hi to Magnus, and uh, have a great time at the Davis Cup. I will. You too. All thanks right. a lot, Steve. Take care. Take care. Bye. Bye. As I end every show, I remind you, just let it rip. <laughs>